Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. Hey, all right. Welcome to episode number 30 of Grow Bud Yourself. We have a great show in store for you guys. Uh, Dr. Mitch Earlywine is back. We have James from Loud Seeds. Uh, We're going to be talking about aphids and root aphids, uh, as well as answering some grow questions from you guys. So stick around for Grow Bud Yourself, brought to you by Excelsior Extracts. All right. Welcome to the show. This is it. Episode number 30. As always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the tune. Welcome to the show. How's it going, Mike? It's going well. Uh, 30 episodes. That That is impressive. Absolutely. And on a weekly basis, even more impressive. Yeah. <laughs> yep. A lot of fun. We got through 30 of these in about the time, you know, it took us to do about six of the uh, free weeds. Yeah, it was uh, 2011 to probably 2015 when we hit 30, but different rhythm back then. That's right. We are independent. Indeed, we are. So So? has everybody checked out the website? Good information there. We're going to try to keep updating that as far as new videos and uh, information. And of course, we'd love it if you guys joined our mailing list. We're going to get that started uh, going out to everybody pretty soon. Yes, please do check out growbudyourself.com. Uh, if you'd like, uh, you know, products from vapor.com, you can click through those links that are on the site. Uh, and again, like Mike said, you can sign up for our newsletter, uh, which is awesome. And we're going to be doing, uh, very soon. And, uh, we're excited about the new website. So check it out, take a look, sign up, uh, Patreon as well has been, uh, thriving. We've been putting up some content there, uh, some video of the show in case you guys want to see us in in three dimensions (laughs) the latest one is aj sour uh talking about the sour diesel and that's uh for patreons only so and you can join up there for just uh four dollars and 20 cents a month uh yeah please check it out patreon.com slash danny danko for sure yeah and uh you know i'm still basking i guess in the glow of the um of the last election it was such a great night for cannabis you know, it did so well across the country in places that you weren't expecting. And it kind of got me thinking, maybe uh, what we should do is um, each show talk a little bit about each legal cannabis state, because there's 15 uh, legal weed states at this point, and then District of Columbia. So it might be interesting, you know, if we talk to somebody from that state and really find out what's going on there. We're not we're not doing it this episode, but maybe in the future we'll start kind of getting the uh, inside scoop on the uh, on the the legal 15. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for people to know what's going on in in all these different states and even in different countries because we've got listeners from all over the world. Um so I'd like to hear about, you know, uh some some of those countries as well and what the situation is and in uh, New Zealand or Australia or the UK or, um, you know, Europe, Africa, wherever people are listening, uh, you know, let us know what's going on uh, legally in your area or how we can help uh, make it better. Yeah. And this counts as community service, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Asking for a friend. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, 
Uh, the other big thing that happened on Election Day was that Oregon, um, first of all, decriminalized all drugs and then also legalized uh, psilocybin for therapeutic use. And we reported that in the last episode. But when we did so, both Dan and I said, you know, we really have to get Dr. Mitch, our friend Dr. Mitch Earlywine's opinion on both things. So you know what? We did. <laughs> Indeed, we did. Yeah, so we spoke with Dr. Mitch about Oregon and also about a few other topics. So uh, what do you say? Should we just uh, get right into that interview? Yeah, let's talk to the good doctor. All right, and uh, we are thrilled to once again be joined by our friend, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, professor of psychology over there in uh, SUNY Albany, and also author of uh, Understanding Marijuana, The Parent's Guide to Marijuana. Mitch, thank you so much for, for joining us again. Oh, glad to see you guys. And, uh, you know, Dan and I, uh, on the last episode, we discussed some of the election results. And one of the things that we were talking about, we both said, well, we got to get Dr. Mitch on the show to to ask him about this. So Oregon uh, legalized psilocybin, which is the uh, substance in magic mushrooms, and they did it for therapeutic purposes. So uh, we wanted to get your take on exactly uh, what that means and, and how you think that will uh, end up turning out for them. I'm super excited. And it's not uh, it's not like just the decrim we've seen in a couple of cities in the U.S. Uh, Denver, I think, was one of the first to just decriminalize them. It's 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 full. You can you can actually have these and use them in a therapeutic setting. They've got a two year arrangement where basically they're going to have to have meetings and God only knows what kinds of uh, people chiming in on what is and isn't an appropriate therapeutic use. But then they're going to be uh, essentially available for empirically supported uses. And I think we've got interesting data on depression, trauma, uh, some substance use data even. So it depends on how flexible they're going to be willing to be. I think it's going to be psychedelic assisted, if you will, rather than coming in and just saying, hey, trip your brains out and and then bye. You know, it'd be we'll have some preparatory sessions, have a really meaningful psychedelic session and then have some integration sessions as part of ongoing therapy. I'm, I'm optimistic that that actually could really be uh, super productive. I'm, I'm sure hoping that they have the, the right folks on that committee to make sure that they can be open minded, data based and, you know, make the most of these, particularly given some of the PTSD stuff that I know that they've been struggling with at the BA there. And what's the idea there? What are, what's sort of the um, the benefit of using that kind of a substance in a therapeutic environment? Is it just to access things that the patient may not be able to ordinarily, or is there something else about it? It's curious because the the hypothesizing is wild and crazy, but the only empirically supported findings we have suggest that there's a mechanism, and it has to do with experiencing mystical moments that uh, are connectedness or part of feeling like you're one with humanity and the universe and things like that. Those are the folks who seem to get better at, you know, six week follow up. Whereas if you just feel kind of disembodied or nauseated or something like that, those folks don't feel uh, as, as good later on, at least for the depression literature and some of the PTSD stuff as well. So I'm thinking that 
uh, clinically, it'll probably be part of, say, standard cognitive therapy, where what you want to do is take a look at your own thoughts and their impact on your feelings. Obviously, the psychedelic experience sort of lets you separate who you are from what you think in a way that's novel and interesting. And so then therapeutically, if you're going to say, hey, let's challenge this thought that the world is a dangerous place. Let's challenge this thought that things are never going to get better. Now you can sort of see your thought as separate from who you are. And folks who really, you know, have that ego dissolution, they'll say literally like, ah, it wasn't me anyway. You know, very, very intriguing. I'm just at the universe and and this is just kind of a puppet getting pulled along, right? Which sounds a little psychotic and strange, but it's also super liberating for folks who need to forgive themselves, need to forgive others, need to not take their life so seriously. So I'm really hoping that that'll pan out. Now, I do have data um, trying to get published now. High doses of THC make comparable effects. I know you guys would uh, probably agree. And so it'd be delightful for me to eventually have cannabis-assisted psychotherapy. Not that you'd get high every day, but that you'd come in and really hit an edible hard, put those you know eye shades on, listen to some music, let yourself go and start to get a feel for how you are different from your cognitions, your behaviors, and even your mood. Yeah. You know, it almost seems like a, like a hard reset, you know, where basically, you know, we're all walking around with all this baggage, uh, unresolved grief and, and all of these things. And that experience in, in, in some cases just sort of brings you back to zero you know what i mean where you just sort of say like okay that's all kind of, that that all you can leave it behind you know or or at least attempt to without it weighing you down so much and i think for people with you know severe trauma or you know even just like i said unresolved grief or 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 um you know issues with decisions that they made in the past or you know procrastination almost anything you know it just sort of opens your eyes to, to, you know, a new day and a new dawn. And, and, you know, that can be essential for people, I think for couples therapy, for all of these different things, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't not necessarily just depression and post-traumatic stress, but just all of the things that life sort of piles onto us. Charlie Grobe did the, um, the end of life trials of folks with cancer who got to come in and do it and said, part of it really is, uh, this getting the cosmic joke, if you will. So folks are in there kind of laughing and then catch themselves later in day-to-day life going, oh man, I'm, I'm forgetting that I'm at one with the universe and I'm even letting it upset me. Isn't that funny? And, and suddenly their whole perspective on not only uh, having a happy mood, but even what a catastrophe it is or isn't if I don't changes and that that just seems super liberating and more flexible way to go about your day you know yeah and you also mentioned it um for people who are in the throes of addiction or or just um you know habits uh nicotine alcohol uh you know all these uh opiates and things and and i mean i've seen and met you know, many, many people who've, who've sworn that whether it be cannabis, uh, psilocybin, MDMA, MDMA, whatever, what they had an experience that sh- basically just sort of shocked them out of 
the habits that they were they had formed and the addictions that they had and you know i think that's essential it it extends your life and it improves your life and that's you know who could ask for any anything better than that it's quaint because i've had some informal chats with the guys who uh quit smoking cigarettes from ayahuasca and basically said it's impossible to have a great experience on the psychedelic itself when you know you're sort of harming yourself and that that disparity between what you really value and how you behave starts to show up in a, in a different way. Yeah. Well, amazing findings and and hopefully they they can expand on that and really uh, help people and change lives. And I mean, so far all the samples have been kind of small and the, uh, placebo groups are, you know, getting some benefit from the process as well, which I think is kind of neat. We could all use a few hours of just lying down, listening to some music with some eye shades on, but, but, uh, I'm hoping that this does become an opportunity to gather the data to really make this happen. No, it sounds like a pretty amazing thing. And of course, uh, Oregon on the same night also decriminalized all drugs and they're the first uh, state in the country to do so. So what are your thoughts on that? How do you think that's going to impact uh, that state and the citizens there? So the years ago, I don't know if you guys remember when Portugal basically made a comparable arrangement, but they also really added a ton of support for folks who get busted with a personal amount. It's not that you just get to walk, walk away scot-free. It's, it's uh, basically a recommendation to a formal treatment program to assess if you have a problem or not. And if you do, an arrangement where you get job training, regular psychotherapy, methadone if you need it, like a really big commitment to helping folks in multiple domains of their lives. The Oregon arrangement, I don't know if it's going to be quite that formal and quite that elaborate. So my worry is uh, if it isn't perfect right away, everybody's going to say, see, it doesn't work and then slam it down. When in fact, odds are high, if they will provide the support, it really will pay off. The other concern, of course, is sort of drug tourism, right? Like, oh, all of a sudden, everybody's going to cross the border and hang out in Oregon just to try to buy drugs or something like that. And they shouted that at Portugal early on, and it it just really didn't happen. Usually there's a few months where it's kind of a novelty, and then people have to go about their lives now. And if you think about it, too, the the cannabis arrangements near there are relatively good. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that if they really put the support in uh, and don't just say, okay, well, fine, it's decriminalizing all drugs, but that's all we're going to do. We're going to see some wonderful outcomes. You know, I uh, we talked about this last week as well. And, you know, my point at the time was basically that, you know, this is a, a, a medical issue and it's not a criminal issue. And so, uh, you know, dealing with it in the way that you're describing it is, is the right way. And I think you know, it takes some of the romance out of it as well. I mean, there's this whole kind of outlaw culture that even, you know, that cannabis is a part of, but also, you know, copping and and going to certain areas. And there's this whole, you know, kind of, I, I guess the best word is romance around that. And when you take that out of it and a person, is, you know, I've seen this in, in Ireland as well, where, you know, you're just basically registered as an, an, 
you know, an addict and you go to the pharmacy and you pick up uh, and, and, and it, it just becomes a lot more clinical. <laughs> and I think, you know, that that may also play a role in, you know, helping people wean themselves off is is no longer seeing it as, you know, something, you know, that's like sung about in, in rock, rock and roll songs and, and more along the lines of just an addiction and, and something that you have to treat uh, in a clinic. And, I, you know, I think that, you know, that happened in Portugal in some ways as well. And uh, in any place where they have, you know, uh, clean needle exchanges and things like that, it's it just becomes more of, of process. And, and the person starts to realize that they are in the throes of addiction rather than in the throes of a, you know, William Burroughs novel. <laughs> yeah. That forbidden fruit was what was such the draw for particularly young users for so long. And when you do get to talk to some of the folks at uh, the shooting galleries, the, the clean clinics where you can get a nice needle and you have to inject right there. And it's not necessarily a party place, but you also won't get beaten up and killed and, you know, robbed and things like that. And they treat it like a bad habit, much the way we do with cigarette smoking now, where you'll see somebody who smokes cigarettes and they're sort of embarrassed and befuddled and say how much they've got to quit. And it's much less of an interference that way instead of I've got a cop four times a day. I need to commit crimes just to have the money because of this underground market. And I can't sleep at night. Like just to take all that part out, it really is just a, a sometimes embarrassing bad habit. Yeah. It's funny because I, I remember this from my first few trips to Amsterdam and you know we're so excited to be in the coffee shops and ordering off the menus but then speaking to uh young dutch people and their perception of you know cannabis that you know that's like something that tourists and older people do and it wasn't deemed to be like cool or underground or anything because it was so out in the open that you know it wasn't it wasn't cool to them. And I thought that was interesting. It just took, took away that, uh, you know, the allure of, of, you know, the, that outlaw kind of, you know, underground thing and, and just put it out in the open and, and, and hear their perception of it as, Oh, that's, you know, for fuddy duddies or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, I think that, that, that's a, you know, a, a interesting motivator aside from, you know, obviously, therapy and all, all the other things that have to go into, you know, weaning yourself off of a, something you're addicted to. One of my undergrads from the Netherlands said, oh, that's for old hippies. And I said, oh, you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> she said, maybe for some people it is, you know. Yeah. So not not even heroin, but just, just cannabis use even. So. Right. Yeah, to your first point, Dan, it's interesting. I think uh, I think there is something to the ritual of of getting drugs and doing drugs that's not as addictive as the drug, but it, it's something where I've I've talked to people that uh, years after quitting, it's something that they still think about and still miss doing. You know, the, the process <laughs> of it. It is very. It's a romantic idea of it, but uh, yeah. Anyway, well, also maybe this for the same reason I like to, you know, sit down and, and grind up a flower and roll mm -hmm. a joint the and, ritual, and take yeah. a dry hit and, and, and then light it rather than, you know, let's say a sublingual tablet that would make me feel the same way. You know, it's just not the same. Exactly. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, the the last time you were on, uh, Mitch, we discussed a, a few topics, but one of them was uh, the idea that uh, savoring can help buffer against other problems that come along with cannabis. But but you had an update on that, right? I'm delighted to say we do have a a replication of that, and it's funny because we don't often uh, get scientific studies to repeat themselves. But uh, my student Maha just replicated that same finding that my student Rachel Luba, who's down at Columbia now, had. And this is going to show up in the uh, Journal of Psychoactive Drugs probably in the very next issue. Bottom line is people who savor, it's sort of like mindfulness, but the positive side. So if you relish any experience and kind of take it in and make the most of it and and just essentially uh savor each moment you end up happier and we found previously that that's also a buffer against cannabis problems so even folks who smoke every single day in relatively high quantities if they savor they get fewer problems than folks who don't and it's not even asking about savoring the cannabis experience although you can imagine that's basically what maha's dissertation is going to be about it's just savoring anything and so uh, it's not a huge effect, but it's enough to make it so that we also asked, hey, if you were going to learn some kind of prevention of problems thing, we got standard harm reduction stuff, which is like, you know, don't smoke in the morning, try to uh, control your timing and, and try to control your amounts and things like that. Or would you like to learn how to savor? And people were much more into the savoring, uh, particularly women who uh, it's it's intriguing because we've seen how uh, the perception of cannabis problems in women has changed over the last 15 years or so. And I'm hoping that uh, this could be a, a prevention effort, if you will, that might really target women for making sure you keep cannabis problems to a minimum. I'm glad to hear that there's progress being made on that. And um, as always, we went a little long here, but we're so, so happy that you were able to join us again on Grow Bud Yourself. If you could just tell the listeners um, how they can learn more about what you're doing, what you're up to, where they could find you on the Internet. So right now I'm teaching my drug class COVID style. So if they want to go on YouTube and just search Dr. Mitch Earlywine, they'll literally have access to the lectures that I'm giving in my class uh, for the semester, and there's a whole, the, the last fifth of it's all cannabis oriented, and we do a little bit of history, a little bit of pharmacology. I'm not exactly, uh, you know, going out into the Andes myself or taking folks to the Amazon, but I can at least, you know, give you a good feel for it. And uh, they're welcome to to come to that page and, and basically enjoy anything they want on that. They can also email me if they've got any questions at 420research at gmail.com. That's 420research at gmail.com. And I'm always happy to hear what questions folks have and answer what I do know. All right, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, thank you so much. And we'll be right back with more Grow Bud Yourself. All right. Yeah, that was a, a very informative. And uh, we're getting a little spoiled because every time you and I are like, yeah, I, I don't really uh, understand that. We can always say, well, you know, we'll have Dr. Mitch on the show and he'll set us straight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yes. So thank you to Dr. Mitch. Yes. Thank you to Dr. Mitch. And, you know, we also we also have another great interview coming up um, with James from Loud Seeds. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cannabis Cup winner, multiple 
uh, Times Great Breeder, uh, NorCal uh, gentleman and a member of the High Times Seed Bank Hall of Fame. Uh, James from Loud Seeds, uh, you know, came on the show to tell us all about uh, the past, the present and the future of cannabis breeding and cultivation. Yeah, man. It's an excellent interview. Uh, what do you say? Should we uh, should we get right to that? Sounds good. We'll be back uh, after these messages with James from Loud Seeds. Hey, you guys. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Extracts and their incredible THC-infused relief rub. Uh, and now this stuff really works. And uh, I know it works because it's made by our friend Outcast, and she needs very, very strong topicals. Uh, So the Relief Rub is the strongest topical I've ever tried. Check them out on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts, all one word. Uh, DM them for info on the Relief Rub if you're interested, and uh, give them a follow. Uh, They're great people, and they grow great cannabis and make great products so thank you to excelsior extracts now back to the show all right we are back and we have a very special guest for you guys this week uh it is a cannabis cup winner multiple cannabis cup winner and uh incredible uh cannabis breeder and uh cultivator James Loud from Loud Seeds. James, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So um, let's go back in time to a young James. Uh, you know, I think you were, you, you're a NorCal guy, uh, born and raised. Oh, yeah. Well, born in Portland, Oregon, uh, raised in the Bay Area. I lived in Texas when I was real little. My parents still live in Dallas. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, Growing up in the Bay Area, we had lots of good herb. Uh, it was a thing, you know. I, Grateful Dead brought a lot of interesting things uh, to the area. And I would say that, you know, cannabis and psychedelics were definitely a part of that. So uh, what were some of your early experiences with cannabis and, and how did that sort of uh, form who you became? So it's really interesting. And I, I love telling this story because I think uh, I'm in a unique position as uh, when I was in high school. I didn't smoke weed first. I tried LSD. I took LSD probably 10 times because I was scared that smoking weed would be bad for my lungs. Uh, I ran cross country and I like wrestled in high school and stuff. So I had taken this, I figured this little piece of paper can't be that bad for you. And uh, next thing you know, know, six months later, I was smoking weed and we we had a wide variety of stuff available. Of course, there was like the brown bammer stuff from Mexico that was seeded. But we also, even from, you know, early on, we had access, you know, and this is 91 when I first started smoking, we had access to some killer green book, you know, stuff that home grow, you know, every fall, just like right now, you know, there'd be bags of some sour diesel. We had really amazing cultivars. You know, there was, there was cannabis cup winning stuff going around in the nineties. Uh, Cat piss was one of my favorites early on, uh, you know, and that, that is a unique terpene profile. You've got, uh, and they don't even know if it's terpene. I was just discussing it with someone the other day about the actual um, smell, it, you know, cause it has that uh, really distinct Windexy smell. And that was, that was my favorite early on. And I'm, I'm still looking to find it again. We haven't seen real cat piss in over 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, so did you s- basically start cultivating at a pretty young age? Yeah. You know, my brother, 
my brother actually, who's uh, three years younger than me, I got some seeds and he wanted to start growing. And so we were growing in my parents' backyard. Uh, he was doing more of the work, but you know, it's like, uh, we were growing in the parents' backyard. And then at night when my parents would come home, we'd go stash the plants in the neighbor's yard. And so this is, I was 15 years old at the time, I think, 15, 16. And so, you know, that kind of just expanded on to when I moved, I moved out when I was 17 years old and started growing in a closet. We had a Phototron. I don't know if you're familiar with the Phototron. Of course. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and me, I'm one of those guys who loves to tinker. And so like I took my Phototron and we did one run in the Phototron and I didn't really like it. I didn't feel like there was enough light intensity. So I cut the top off. And my friend had stolen a uh, light from the mall, Sun Valley Mall. It was like a 400-watt uh, HPS. And so we put the HPS above it. And uh, we actually got really, really good results from it. Uh, the problem was that uh, I went snowboarding with my friend, and he had to actually water for me. And I said, make sure just add a tablespoon of fish emulsion. You know, I'm sure you can imagine this story. But uh, he ended up pouring the whole gallon of fish emulsion on the plant. And I told him one tablespoon. And uh, we had like literally Salmon Creek Big Butt. It smelled like Salmon Creek in the house when I got back. And I'm like, what's going on? And we flushed it and we tried everything and we completely ruined it. Um, I think I ended up selling, I, could, I couldn't even smoke it myself, but my friend ended up buying it like for $40 for an ounce or something like that. There was, we got like six ounces. Uh, and this is way, way back then. But, uh, you know, I started breeding uh, probably about... You know, I was messing around with breeding for a long time before I actually got good at it. Uh, I'd met one of my my friend Luke, who kind of was really the inspiration behind Loud Seeds. Him and I together, we uh, started the breeding projects with the original Loud, uh, and we wanted to make something that was our own. And it really it started with the sour diesel uh, because we really like sour diesel, and we kind of wanted to make something that was our own, that was unique, that was good. You know, and it's like uh, there was so many different varieties back then that were okay and then there was a handful of stuff that was just amazing so we really kind of tried to push forward with doing selection and early on i learned that anybody can make seeds you know all, all it takes is a male plant and a female plant we're not talking about feminized seeds auto flowering and the technical stuff all you need is a male plant and a female plant and you have seeds what the real you know the real thing is is the selection process um, and that selection process, you know, is, is the one thing that makes you a true breeder or, or just a pollen chucker. And there's a lot of pollen chuckers out there and there's very few real breeders. And the selection process is where you find those, those outliers, those unicorns, those things that are special, you know, and that's, you know, that's what makes uh, cannabis breeding so special too, is that it really takes a good cultivator to actually do the breeding. Yeah, right. So you have to be able to uh, choose females, but also males as well uh, sure. for for desirable traits. Um, and also, as you mentioned, I think uh, grow out large populations in, in order to find the outliers. Um, so how important are, you know, are those type of, you know, techniques when it comes to breeding and finding something really special? Those are everything. And it's, it's all a combination of stuff. I mean, there is some luck involved, uh, but yeah, I mean, doing your selections with your females and your males, understanding, you know, uh, my friend short Brooks and, and him and I talk about it a lot of times, a lot of times we, you know, we spend hours and hours talking about this. We have ever since I've known him and it's about compatibility too. So just cause you have a good cultivar that's, you know, for your donor and your, your receiver, those things don't always make a great progeny. 
of seeds and you know it, it doesn't mean that you're going to get good stuff so it's really about compatibility finding a good donor finding a good receiver and then growing those out seeing what you get and testing you know testing 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 the other thing is is just because you grew it out from a seed doesn't mean that selection is going to be a winner you have to grow it out multiple times uh, sexual maturity is such a huge thing and i think it's something that's overlooked by a lot of people Absolutely. Um, now you started uh, winning some cannabis cups uh, as well uh, in 2012, I believe, in Amsterdam, a first place uh, finish. And I think it was that the first big award that you you received. That was the first big award, and it was kind of a shock. Uh, it was for Loud Scout, which is a Girl Scout cookies cross. It was a platinum, yeah, basically platinum cookies. It was the Platinum Kush times uh, the original Girl Scout, which is still debatable on which Girl Scout cookies we got it. You know, we paid five thousand dollars for that cut, and you know it's it's amazing. The problem is, is like the one we got wasn't like the Forum cut, which people talk about the Forum as being the original. Our cut was very you know terrible node spacing, super super low yields, and so I was talking with one of my friends and said, you know, we need to put something on to increase the bigger. We are already doing breeding, so it was like. Let's throw in uh, reverse this this platinum OG, put this on there, and see if we can get something special. And uh, it was real interesting because I had brought a whole bunch of stuff to Amsterdam, thinking these were all going to win. And this this uh, cookies, which was popular at the time, I was thinking, well, I, it, it might do okay, but I don't think it's really going to stand up with everything else. And literally, the entry that I entered in had bananas on it. I pulled forty bananas off our entry before I turned in the entry. Um, but it was, it was an amazing, you know, it, it was really, you know, T.H. Caesar kind of, he'll st- still talk about the unique terpene profile. It was like really, really cherry heavy on the nose. And, uh, you know, when we were standing uh, at the awards ceremony, I remember them, you know, we'd, we'd heard rumors that Cookies won it. But I assumed that uh, Swerve, he was the other guy that entered it. And so him and his crew were all standing up by the stage and like literally when they uh, announced Loud Seeds, you know, Mike and I were both there. We were both in shock. Mike, Mike Jennings, my partner, Mike Loud or Mike Seeds, he was uh, totally in shock as well. We looked at each other like, "What the heck?" Like, unbelievable. We were going there to have fun. We had this small little booth, and you know, regardless of what you think of High Times, you know, that was one of the instances where it's like we weren't the the company that invested all the big money. We were the company that went there not thinking we were going to win and ended up pulling a first place in the high. That was that was a big deal for us, you know, back then. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't the first. I mean, it was the first, but it wasn't the only uh, award because the next year uh, you guys won it again and then started winning the American uh, Cups as well, uh, which is just outstanding. And so it wasn't just like a fluke either because uh, you also won with other strains, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the headband that we had, it's funny, we we, we were lied to by our good friend Noel from, uh, from Nectar's he had told us that the headband cut that we had uh, was a chem dog. He said it was a he. It was a chem times sour, I believe, and the, the, or the, it was a chem something. And the truth, uh, it was the original OG Kush that he had gotten from Josh D. We figured all this out years later. You know, I'd make crosses with it and sold seeds with those crosses. And it turns out, you know, the Mojave Mojave Richmond and Josh D renamed the OG Kush cut headband and he'd actually gotten it to Noel and we had grown it out. It was one of like the, the crew cuts that we had up here in NorCal. So. Wow. 
Right on. Well, what are uh, what are some of the techniques that you would recommend if someone gets a pack of your seeds and they want to grow it out and really get the full uh, terpene profile and everything? Um, like, what do, what do you recommend as far as the style in which to, to accomplish that? Well, the, the thing is, is I think there's so many different ways to skin a cat. It's real personal preference is how it goes. I mean, you know, if you're a very a new beginner, you know, I, I say read as much as you can, but try not to listen to everybody. Follow one path and then change one thing at a time. But, you know, it, it's so growing is so personal and there's so many different ways to do it. And there's so many different variables. Uh, if you think about a plant in flower, it's like about the same amount of years as a human lives is days a plant lives uh, as far as cannabis. So you think 70 days, like an average cultivar is about 70 days of flower. Well, that's like a year for basically one human year is equal to one day of a plant's life. So if you screw that plant up one day, you could be screwing up like equivalent to how bad it could be for a human for a year. Uh, sounds kind of odd, but like I try to put stuff into perspective like that with a lot of people. All my stuff is, you know, it varies so much because I, I really do geo breeding. So I'm going for geography, uh, geoclimatized seeds now. That's kind of the, the direction I'm going in. I'm working in the Caribbean with like Marlon Asher. Uh, him and I have Ganja Farmer Seed Company together, and we're kind of really trying to bring stuff to the Caribbean that's going to work well, breed stuff that is complementary yet unique. Uh, so, you know, w w as far as growing my seeds out, it's a personal preference. I mean, people ask me questions all the time. I try to help them. Uh, I'm a huge advocate of no-till living soil, especially if you're smoking it yourself and doing it at home. But, uh, you know, some people love growing hydro. Some people love growing in cocoa. Um, you know, it's like if I'm, if I'm growing stuff myself, I have, uh, six yards of living soil for my own personal smoke. That's what I grow in. But as far as for seed production, I grow in cocoa. Now, the reason I grow in cocoa is because it's inert, uh, similar to how, uh, you know, and typically I'm doing large seed runs. So I don't want to screw my seed runs up by doing living soil indoors, especially on the scale that I'm doing. Now, I think there's some people that do it and probably do it well. That's just not how I do it. Now, you're also doing a, a show, like a radio show, right? A podcast? Oh, yeah. We do every Sunday, 11 o'clock. Hopefully, you're going to come on next week or the week after. Uh, but, yeah, it's the James Loud Show. It's on YouTube uh, with the Future Cannabis Project. So we do uh, about two hours, and I talk with breeders and try to pick apart people in the industry. You know, we, we ask good questions. I try not to do a lot of talking. I do more of the listening and asking questions. And so one of the interesting things I do is I kind of give the questions in advance because I want it to be technical so that the as the host, I can ask these technical questions. They have time to think about the answers beforehand. So, you know, I get guys like Energene, you know, do guys that do molecular breeding and stuff like that or data-driven breeding on the show? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, – a little bit more about molecular breeding. Does that have to do with uh, like tissue culture Technically, molecular breeding would be using CRISPR-Cas9 to edit the DNA. Now, I'm not saying that molecular breeding is good, and I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's something that we need to explore regardless. Uh, you know, gene editing tools have been around. They're going to be around. We're going to use them. I, uh, I, I'm on the fence about stuff, but I still feel we, we can't be afraid of science. And literally 10 years ago, we were afraid of feminized seeds. So I'm in talks with the energy and I've been in talks with them for a while, but what energy does is actually analyze data 
that helps you breed. And what they do is we, we look at, you look for, basically they do the mapping of the genome and then we look for markers. Now taking those markers, then you breed towards specific traits. And so you isolate like five traits and then you can breed. And what that allows it to do is you breed a lot faster. So stuff that would take, you know, five years, like Simon from Sirius would do, um, with like AK-47, Cali Mist, those strains, you can do those in approximately two years once you have your markers. Wow. Well, that's pretty interesting as well. Like, uh, what do you, do you, now what do you see as sort of the future uh, when it comes to uh, breeding and uh, cannabis genetics in general? Well, I see, you know, big business getting involved, which is kind of a problem. I see patents going online and uh, things like that. But I, I see... I see some of the, you know, the home home breeding, you know, that, that's all good. But as far as like there's 2,000 seed companies right now, all trying to sell $10 seeds. I think a lot of that is going to go away. There's still going to be, you know, your guys that are established. They're still going to be selling seeds. Some of them will have sold their brands off. Um, right now we have 40 gelatos. Half of them are the same exact strain. And they're all popular with different names. Uh, that stuff is going to go away. People are going to get very familiar with specific cultivars, and I think they're going to attach to those. Right now, I see the market as going from one week to the next. Whatever's trendy and popular today, one week from now, it might not be popular. Two weeks from now, it might not be popular. Three months, it's not going to be the new latest and greatest. You know, we got Snow Montana. That's super popular right now. Pluto was popular for a long time. I, I love Pluto. I don't know if you've tried Pluto yet, but uh, it's like a wedding cake cross that has uh, gelato in it. And for me, you know, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea. I'm a terp guy. I love real strong terps. I love real flavorful stuff. Uh, but even the most popular stuff is just constantly getting pushed to the back with the new latest and greatest. And a lot of the times the new latest and greatest is just a slight variation. So genetically, it might not even be different. And so I see the future as a more of a stable market. I, at least I hope it's more of a stable market. Uh, and what that allows people like me to do is create stable genetics. If I have something that I know is going to be around three years from now or going to be popular three, three years from now, I can create a stable line of seeds. Right now, everyone's working on these F1 hybrids. And pretty much everything is a complex F1 polyhybrid. And what that means is it has several genetic lines in it. And it's heterozygous, which means that you uh, breed with it, you're going to get a progeny that has several different things, phenotypical variation, which is variation all over the board. Um, and what I would love to do is to be able to breed stable lines. And what that requires is inbreeding, and that takes several years to inbreed. And, well, with that process, by the time you breed something that's special, it's not special anymore. Right. Right. Um, now what are, what, what are some foolproof ways for people to germinate their seeds? I would imagine you, you pop a lot of seeds in your, uh, in your career. Uh, what, what do you recommend for people who are, pay, you know, sometimes paying top dollar for, you know, a 10 pack? Well, you know, there's, there's one trick I really like is the six to one hydrogen peroxide water mix. And so that ratio, it's a uh, six to one water to hydrogen peroxide. And it's just your basic 4% hydrogen peroxide. You do that soak for 24 hours, and then you can let it continue soaking in paper towels. 
Um, and what that does is it helps ster sterilize the surface and the seeds. And what people don't realize, I mean, you don't have to do this, but this is just another way to get higher germination rates. Um, you know, and especially for like the home, home breeder who's spending lots of money on seeds, I recommend doing a wash like that. I think it's, it's pretty simple and, and effective. Um, you know, the old paper towel method is great, but uh, adding that little bit of hydrogen peroxide is super beneficial. Um, you know, it, on the scale that I'm doing stuff, we use needle seeders. This is basically a vacuum seeder that spins around with a needle and the needle sucks the seed up with air, spins around and it goes right into the soil, injects it in the soil. And so it can do whole trays. You can do, you know, 50,000 seeds in a day, no problem. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, now, what are some of your favorite strains that you've uh, developed and, and why are they your favorites? So, well, this is a great time to talk about some of the new, new projects I'm doing. Um, I'm working, we have a company called Loud Canagenics and Tim Humiston from Canna Organics is my business partner with that and um, Andrew Jones, another guy. And we're working on uh, some really amazing projects coming up, but the seed launch we're in the process of doing is uh, Gelato 41 crosses. And Tim and I have been talking a while on um, different crosses that have high THC that are extremely terpene strong that, that taste amazing. So the gelato 41 that was selected you know he's done some s1s and i've done some s1s of the gelato 41 and uh using that gelato 41 as a backbone uh really complements stuff and when i was in arizona i worked uh, for a company called earth healing in arizona we did some phenols and we tested over 100 different varieties some of mine some of like the jungle boy stuff some of you know you name the top breeders they were in there so I found out with my stuff, stacking it up, I had really, really good terpene profiles, but what the, the market really wants is high THC. And so when we when they came out with testing, my stuff tested around 20, you know, it's some less, some more, but uh, you look at some of these other guys and their stuff was testing in the 30s. Now I had a lot more terpene. So Tim said, well, you know, I have this idea. And so he came up with the idea that we're gonna do the Gelato 41, put it on some really interesting stuff. And uh, so we have all these crosses coming out. I think Black Friday next week we're releasing on C-Tier. Now we got the Glue Lotto, which is also featured in Skunk Magazine this month, which is uh, Gorilla Glue times Gelato 41. And I feel like, uh, you know, breeding for purpose, kind of the idea behind that was you take the uh, Gorilla Glue and then you take the Gelato and you can improve on both of those varieties, uh, yield-wise, terpene-wise, THC-wise, if you're looking for your, your outliers. So, and that's really, you know, I, I honestly think that I'm looking for that 1%. So for me, I need a hundred seeds to do my searches when I'm, when I'm like searching for phenotypes, I really like to work with at least a hundred, a hundred is a nice round number. You know, some people find winners in a 10 pack. I just feel like really what you're looking for is that 1%. Awesome. Uh, now how do people, uh, keep up with uh, loud seeds and, and you know, what are, what's the best way for people to, to find out what you're do, what you're involved in, what you're up to and how to get loud. To get loud. You know, I'm on YouTube going on YouTube weekly is a, a great way to do it or following up on, you know, we have a thousand people tuning in live and about 8,000 people during the week, watch our show. And so that's future cannabis project at YouTube. Uh, and then you just look for the James loud show. 
Awesome. And there's also uh, at Loud Seeds at Instagram as well, right? Correct. Yep. Awesome. Well, and then, uh, yeah, and then Ganja Farmer Seed Company with Marlon Asher. Him and I are doing some interesting projects. I think in the next three or four months, we'll have gummies in California as well under Ganja Farmer Gummies. So I've been working on formulating gummies with my friend Marcus Lentz, Medi Brothers. I'm sure you, you met those guys. Of course. Well, Marcus was just out here helping with gummies. He's an amazing guy. So, well, yeah, I'm going to have some form of loud gummies, James Loud gummies, something like that coming out too. We're in the process of licensing right now. So, Awesome. Yeah. Well, we're big fans of, uh, of Marlon Asher, the reggae artists, uh, uh, the Ganja Farmer uh, here at the podcast. And uh, that's a great collabo. Uh, that sounds amazing. And uh, yeah, big fans of Loud Seeds as well. I mean, I, I, uh, I put you guys in the uh, High Time Seed Bank Hall of Fame in 2014 after all the uh, consecutive wins, you know, from 2012 into t- 2013 and just, uh, you know, just an amazing run there. And uh, very appreciative of you for coming on the show and looking forward to going uh, on your show as well. Uh, so, yeah, any last words for the uh, Grow Bud Yourself listeners, James? Yeah, just do it with passion. You know, it's like uh, forget about the money, forget about the other stuff. Do it because you love it. You know, I feel like we have a mix of both in the industry and, you know, people that have, live passion driven lives are more successful. Uh, Danny's great. You know, you, you've lived a passion driven life. You know, I, I really have a lot of respect for you and thanks guys. Well, Hey, listen, thank you for coming on the show and uh, really appreciate it. Um, we will be back with more grow bud yourself after these messages. All right, we are back and, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, to James for the enlightening uh, interview loud seeds yeah very cool absolutely good to hear from james and loud yeah and uh so this is our cultivation segment yes we are now in the cultivation segment and uh, we did a strain of the week last week this is not a fortnight a week so that means that we're going to skip that but as every week uh dan discusses an element of growing that will help you become a better cultivator. So what are you going to talk about this week? Yes, uh, I want to talk about a particular pest and how to deal with it, how to identify it. Um, And it is the aphid. Uh, Some people say aphid. uh, I say aphid. Um, And then there's the root uh, aphid as well, which is a a cousin, uh, all part of the super family uh, aphidoidea. Um, with the common names, uh, green fly, black fly. Anyway, the important thing to know is basically these are, are, are flightless females uh, that give birth to female nymphs who basically are already pregnant when they're born. Uh, and that's really the issue here uh, is how quickly these can reproduce. And uh, they and, and they're jerks, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, they sap the, the life right out of your plants. They are... Uh, the vegetarians that we despise in our grow rooms. Um, they suck the life out of your plants. Uh, they leave behind this sort of honeydew uh, glaze uh, pathways that you'll see uh, from from their travels. They don't move very quickly, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, because if you do have an infestation, the first thing to do, uh, if you notice it in one area, is to remove the plants from that area. Uh, and separate them immediately uh, so that the, uh, the aphids can't spread. Um, 
But a lot of times, you know, uh, aphid infestations are misdiagnosed as nutrient problems because the uh, leaves start to droop and, and yellow and die. And so, uh, you know, there's that sap or that honeydew, uh, you know, that they leave behind. But what, what that is, is the residue of the juice that they're basically uh, sucking out of your plants, uh, leaves and stems in the case of uh, aphids and roots in the case of the root aphid, which really is uh, a, an, a real problem. I mean, they're all problems, but uh, the root aphids have become uh, a much bigger deal. Um, so uh, in dealing with them, uh, let's talk about the regular aphids first, the leaf and stem uh, aphids. Uh, one of the things you can use is green lacewings. These are predatory insects. Uh, the larvae feed on the eggs and the immature stages of pests including spider mites, uh, thrips, whiteflies, and aphids. So uh, they work really good. Uh, the larvae love to devour the aphids, so um, they're even sometimes referred to as aphid lions, uh, which is pretty cool. You can order these online, uh, Lacewing, L-A-C-E. Uh, they're shipped as eggs in an inert medium that's made up of rice or bran hulls. Basically, you disperse that mix around the base of your plants, Within a few days, they hatch, they start munching on the aphids and their eggs. Um, so that's a good way naturally to deal with them. Uh, but you really need an, a whole IPM kind of management system because um, they're pretty persistent and they're a pain. So I would say, you know, neem oil is effective during the vegetative stage. Uh, but uh, with the root aphids, uh, again, it's the same situation with them. They're born pregnant, uh, and, you know, a lot of times you can misdiagnose them as fungus gnats. Um, traditional uh, gnat treatments like Azimax and nat roll, uh, natural uh, will not really affect the root aphids. So, uh, and there are also in every kind of growing medium. They love hydroponics, uh, rock wool and grow rocks and all of that. So, um even without mediums in aeroponic and, and DWC systems, uh, you'll find them sometimes just clinging to the, the roots like little clams or whatever. Um, so getting rid of them revolves a combination of efforts. Um, pyrethrins can help, uh, neem oil, as I mentioned, um, organic insecticides. Uh, there's a great product called Botanigard, uh, which is a fungus actually that attacks uh, aphids, whiteflies, and thrips. Um, the best way to avoid getting them is to isolate your new clones, uh, avoid bringing pathogens or infected plants into your grow space, uh, really check that leaf surface for, uh, those slimy kind of almost like snail trails, miniature snail trails that they leave behind. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, aphids in general, uh, they're just they're really a mess because they, they can hide. They kind of take on a bunch of different colors. Uh, they're very tiny. They're this, basically the size of spider mites uh, or slightly larger. Um, once you spot them, like I said, isolate those plants, um, deal with the damage that has occurred. Um, if they're root aphids, uh, you know, use that sort of, uh, you know, soak that goes throughout the root area. Um, 
There's also parasitic wasps, uh, beneficial nematodes, a lot of different things you can use. There's a product called uh, Azamax uh, that helps uh, keep them from feeding on the roots, uh, which is also very slow acting. Uh, as I mentioned, pyrethrin-based sprays can be effective. Um, even yellow sticky traps can help, uh, just seeing how they move around. Um, those nematodes that I mentioned and a uh, product called Nucum, uh, not super duper natural, but that also can help. Uh, but the best really is, is the fungus one I mentioned, Botanigard, uh, ES is really, I think how it's sold, uh, B-O-T-A-N-I-G-A-R-D and then capital E, capital S. Um, so there you have it. Uh, that's how to deal with aphids, identify them, uh, treat them, exterminate them with extreme prejudice. All right. Well, yeah, thank you for those uh, tips on getting rid of those pesky aphids. We hope that helps the growers out there. And um, now to take a couple questions from our listeners. And if you have a, a question that you would like answered on this show, please do reach out to us. You could email us. And that is uh, info at growbudyourself.com. You could also go to the website. That's just growbudyourself.com. Lots of ways to get in touch with us there. So uh, what do you say we jump right in? Let's do it. Okay, let's start with a listener, Dallas, who writes, Hey guys, I love the show. I'm curious about growing in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, now that we have home grow. The problem is, in the summers, it's not uncommon to get up to 118 degrees here. Wow. Uh, with these temps, is growing outdoors just a no-go? Would switching up the seasons work? Uh, can I plant in the fall when it starts cooling down and then harvest in the spring? Uh, winter temps here are usually in the high 60s to 70s, and we only get a frost once or twice a year overnight. Uh, should I just stick to indoors with AC? So uh, what would you say to Dallas about growing in uh, Arizona? Okay, uh, I would say... Yes, you should just stick to indoors with an AC and make sure it's a powerful AC. Uh, make sure you have uh, humidity levels at the proper, uh, you know, area as well, 50 to 60%, uh, because all that heat can really dry out the air AC as well. So um, is growing outdoors a no-go? Uh, 118 is really hot. Um, you really... Uh, anything you can do to protect those outdoor plants in the summer if it's going to be that hot. Um, you know, uh, sheet cloth that, uh, that'll that keep that from being, the heat from accumulating too much at the leaf surface would be helpful. As far as planting in the fall and harvesting in the spring, uh, you can do that, but you would have to supplement the lighting because uh, fall lighting is automatically going to make your plants want to flower. So if you supplement the lighting, you could do it in a greenhouse uh, with supplemental lighting in the fall and then use light deprivation um, as you approach the spring uh, in order to make the plants flower um, at 12, 12, 12 on, 12 off. So it can be done, uh, but just putting them outdoors uh, in the fall uh, you would definitely have to supplement the light to keep them in a vegetative stage um, throughout the winter. So it, it, it can be done, but you would need some type of a greenhouse with supplemental lighting. Uh, should you stick to indoors with AC? Definitely, uh, definitely do that. Uh, and if you can build the greenhouse that we talked about, do that as well. Very good. Uh, we hope that helps you out. And uh, let's move on to a listener who, um, whose name uh, you and I have been absolutely butchering, apparently. 
uh, we, uh, I believe, would say something like Cannabifermen, uh, but uh, he writes, the pronunciation of my handle is Cannabifermen, and that apparently is a line Method Man says in the movie How High. All right. I've seen it, but I don't remember. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I, of course, I know the film. Our friend uh, Reggie Noble, Mr. Red Man, the funk doc himself, uh, stars mm-hmm. in that with Method Man. Uh, yeah. But it's, I guess it's been a while. I got to go back and uh, give that an, 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 a pandemic viewing. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> we have the time. Yes. So, uh, so Canna by Four Men uh, writes, So I'm closing in on my first harvest in a few weeks, and uh, I need as many harvest tips as possible. The best temp humidity, jar sizes, amber glass versus regular glass, uh, things to look out for, etc. A list, if you will. I also have a couple of questions. First, I have concerns about how to take them down best in order to hang them. A few details on my situation. I have a uh, BC Northern Lights dryer box with fan and carbon filter. Uh, Based on previous tips related to harvesting, I pulled the screens out and hung 12 hooks with 10-pound capacity from the ceiling of the box. Secondly, how long is the hang-dry process before committing it to jars? Uh, thanks again. You guys are the best. What, what would you say to uh, buy for men about his harvest? Yes. Okay. So um, it's great that you have that, uh, that dryer box uh, with the fan and carbon filter. Um, again, that you're hanging the plants to dry is great, too. Uh, best way to take them down in order to hang them, uh, if depends on how big the plants are. Uh, if they're three feet or smaller, I would just hang them as whole plants, meaning I would cut the cut them at the base and then just hang it whole like that. Maybe take off some of the bigger fan leaves. Uh, if they're bigger than three feet, I would do them sort of branch by branch, cutting from the top cola and the first branch, uh, cutting from first at that node from the top down creating that uh that v-shaped uh kind of hook uh and hanging them that way um as far as the amount of time uh the hang drying process should take you at least uh seven to ten days uh to do it properly um so you don't want the fan blowing uh too hard inside that that box uh you just uh, as far as temperature the cooler, the better. I would say the closer you can get to 60 degrees, you know, if you can keep it 60, 65 or so, uh, that's best for not uh, losing a lot of the uh, uh, essential oil, you know, the terpenoids and, and flavonoids and and all of that. Humidity, uh, you know, should be maintained around 50% or so, maybe 40%. Uh, not a lot higher. A lot of water and moisture is going to be coming out of your plants. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, jar sizes, I like just the, you know, the regular sort of 16 ounce, uh, glass jars. Uh, amber glass is better than, uh, see-through. Light can degrade THC, so keep those in a cool, dark place. Um, let's see. Well, the best way to know, uh, after that your hang drying process is complete is to bend the branches. Uh, so if they snap, uh, when you bend them, you're ready to cut those buds off and begin the curing process in the jars. If they bend, uh, there's probably still too much moisture there. So that's a a good kind of roundabout way of knowing. Uh, Now those buds will feel dry on the outside, very much, you know, popcorn dry, uh, but there's still a lot of moisture in the middle. 
uh, that needs to work its way out. So when you take those buds off, uh, trim down, you know, some of that sugar leaf that's on the outside and pop them into the jar, seal up that jar uh, for a few hours, open that up and you'll feel that moisture has redistributed and it's now moist on the outside of those buds again. So you do that over and over again. That's the sweating process that we call curing and you will be ready to smoke that uh, after a few weeks or so of that curing process. And it'll only get better over time as long as you keep them in a cool and dark place in sealed glass jars. Enjoy your first harvest. There's nothing better. All right, nice. Well, thank you for the uh, harvesting tips, and we hope that helps you out, uh, Can I Buy Four Men? Uh, we have time, just maybe a couple more, but let's, uh, let's move through these quickly. So, uh, starting with Tropical 170. Uh, I love your podcast. Look forward to new episodes each week. I'm growing weed in a tent. I somehow introduced spider mites into my grow. I deployed a bunch of ladybugs, but they're not working fast enough, and I think this crop is headed for the trash bin. My question is... How do I get rid of the infestation after I trash the plants? Is spraying the tent enough, or do I have to bomb the whole room? Uh, there's no carpet in the room for them to hide in. I really, really hope I can get rid of them, because growing my own weed is the only way to get some, unless I drive to Massachusetts from central New York. That is, until the uh, New York legislature gets its shit together in the next legislative session, LOL. Uh, keep up the awesome work. What would you say to Tropical 170? Yes, uh... Unfortunately, you know, spider mites are very persistent. Uh, once you get rid of your plants and, you know, trash those, uh, there's quite a possibility that those spider mites are going to remain in that tent. Uh, you definitely need to spray the tent uh, all throughout the inside, everywhere you can. I recommend maybe getting a mop uh, and like a bleach, uh, you know, solution and really getting into every uh, you know, the ceiling, the, the floor, the, the walls of that tent, uh, as well as, you know, any surrounding area. So the room that the tent is in uh, is also a perfect place for those things to hide the outside of the tent as well. Um, it wouldn't it wouldn't hurt to basically sanitize that entire room that that tent is in. Uh, and then maybe, you know, wait uh, a few uh, weeks or maybe even a month or two uh, before reintroducing plants into that space. Uh, like I said, spider mites are very persistent. They can hide uh, in very tiny places. They can hibernate for long periods of time. Um, so good luck. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope New York legislature gets its shit together as well uh, so we can all start growing without the fear uh, of, uh, you know, anything happening because of it. I should just mention, I added the LOL that wasn't in the email. That is my personal, uh, feeling about the situation, but we hope that helps you there. Tropical 170. And very quickly, we have time for just one more. So let's go to SMG who writes, uh, you are the best cannabis podcast to listen to, to keep us cannabis growers motivated in these troubled COVID times. I am using a full range of nutrients from a well-known nutrient supplier for a micro-autopot cocoa grow. I've heard uh, many different views on mixing nutrients. In what order would you add the nutrients to your reservoir? Would you add uh, the base nutrient A and B first, or would you add the additional nutrients such as rooting, PK, CalMag, etc.? Uh, what would you say to SMG? Yes, I would add the base nutrient first, uh, the A and the B or whatever the 
you know, the grow or the bloom, whatever period that you're in, I would add those base nutrients first. Um, that's typically the, the, the you know, the most uh, that you're going to be adding. And then any sort of additives, uh, CalMag and such, uh, I would add after the base nutrients are already added. Uh, stir that all together, let it sit, and then check, you know, the PPMs and the pH and temperature of that solution uh, after everything's been said and done. Um, so yeah, that's the order that I would add nutrients, uh, to a reservoir. Very good. We hope that helps you out. SMG, uh, thank you to everybody who wrote in. Uh, if you have a question that you would like Dan to answer on this show, get in touch with us, uh, go to growbudyourself.com, find out how to get in touch with us. There's lots of ways there. Check that out. Uh, we are going to take a little break, then come back and wrap this up. Let's do it. All right, we are back, and uh, I believe it's time to wrap it up. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, uh, James from Loud Seeds, uh, Jacques and uh, Winstrong, uh, Excelsior Extracts, always, um, Vapor.com, remember the code, GBY, gets you 15% off everything at Vapor.com, uh, Excelsior, they're great... Uh, uh, THC infused pain rub. Please follow them on Instagram for all kinds of info on what they've got going on. Check our site out, growbudyourself.com and uh, patreon.com slash Danny Danko. Uh, Mike, you got any shout outs? Uh, yeah, I just want to remind everybody that Ardent, uh, Chanel Lindsay's company, if you guys remember, we had uh, Chanel Lindsay on the show uh, a couple of weeks back. Her company, Ardent, which makes uh, great decarboxylators, they have a little deal for Grow Bud Yourself listeners. So if you go to Ardent and you want to buy the Nova or the FX or any of the other great uh, items there, uh, put in the code GBY30 and you'll get uh, $30 off. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, remember, decarboxylation really does activate uh, the cannabinoids in ways that uh, just cooking with cannabis does not. So uh, keep that in mind when it comes to creating edibles, tinctures, or anything else. Absolutely. So, I should also uh, just say maybe really, really quickly, maybe we'll talk about this more next week, but I wanted to congratulate Chanel Lindsay because uh, she had been fighting uh, to get a new delivery license as part of the uh, social equity program up in Massachusetts. And they did approve that there is going to be a new delivery license and um, it is going to be part of the equity program for the first three years. So great job up there. Excellent. Excellent. Great job, Chanel. Uh, great job, Mike. And I think uh, there we have it. Episode number 30 of Grow Bud Yourself. Let's put it in the books. <laughs>